Ooh, now I'm so curious, you're driving me crazy. Hello friends, and welcome to another episode of 119, a Twin Peaks podcast. Today we're here to talk about part 14 of Twin Peaks The Return, We Are Like the Dreamer. My name is Nick, I am joined of course by Dylan. Hello Dylan. Hello, hello. And today we are very pleased to be joined by John Bernardi who you may know as a writer and editor for 25 years later, which, if you're listening to this, is probably a site that you've encountered at some point. And if you've encountered the site, there's an excellent chance that you've seen John's writing. Uh, thanks for being on with us, John. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah. And uh, for people who don't know, why don't you just give people a sort of quick rundown about who you are and uh, your history with Twin Peaks. Well, um, I uh, I watched the show back in 1990 and 91. Um, you know, just having absolutely no idea where it would go or anything. I mean, it used to be a murder mystery when I started watching it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and, yeah, like the uh, I, I ended up seeing it over that summer when they reared the uh, first season episodes, and I was a I was a watcher like as the episodes were airing from season two, pretty much all the way through till around Christmas time. So that would put us to um, right around little Nikki. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes. So, yeah. Yeah. And uh, like, pretty much like all the Bob stuff, like it, it, um, it imprinted pretty heavy on me and um, just trying to um, trying to save Dale Cooper has been a, uh, a thing that's uh, been on my mind on and off uh, ever since it happened because I um, I did come back to watch the finale when it aired on ABC that one Monday night and um, yeah so like just like nobody was expecting uh, Ronette's vision and the train car to be so visceral uh, just like nobody was expecting the reveal of the murderer to be that visceral uh, absolutely nobody expected um, you know what happened to Dale Cooper to be <laughs> happening to him so like it, it's just been kind of a thing uh, where I've been trying to like figure out how to get him out, like right up until Secret History came out, and then from there it's been fun just trying to theorize, like just like what kind of reality we're looking at and uh, everything else. Um, I've um, I was lucky enough to be approached by Andrew Grievous and um, and uh, Lindsay Stamhoy of Bickering Peaks, which is also a wonderful podcast. That, yep. Uh, yeah, you guys hang well with them. Um, it's a great podcast. Yeah, they, uh, so they came to find me and um, basically just say that, uh, hey, we like your writing and uh, think you'd be be uh, fitting in well with, um, with with us. So, yeah, I, um, I helped start a 25 years later site and uh, I've been with them ever since. And I've got a theory notebook called Electricity Nexus that I absolutely love. And I appreciate that they uh, they let me have the chance to just you know <laughs> you know keep figuring out Twin Peaks in in a public forum. Yeah, and um, for anyone listening, 
highly recommend going and checking out John's writing. He's really good. Um, all, all the stuff that they do over there 25 years later is um, really exceptional. Um, there's just so much passion behind all the work that goes into that site. So um, I highly recommend all the all the stuff you guys are doing over there for sure. Well, thank you. Yeah. Thank you too. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I guess without further ado, uh, let's get into this particular episode, uh, part fourteen. We are like the dreamer. I turned and looked. I saw myself. I saw myself from long ago in the old Philadelphia offices. Listening to Cooper telling me he was worried about a dream he had. Gordon, it's 10.10 a.m. on February 16th. I was worried about today because of the dream I told you about. And that was the day Philip Jeffries appeared. Gordon! And didn't appear. Philip, is that you? Philip? Cooper, meet the long-lost Philip Jeffries. You may have heard of him from the Academy. And while Jeffries was apparently there, he raised his arm and pointed at Cooper and asked me, Who do you think that is there? Damn, I hadn't remembered that. Now this is really something interesting to think about. Yes. I'm beginning to remember that too. So, we start things out in Buckhorn uh with um a bit of a bit of a uh, humor here where Gordon calls the uh, Twin Peaks Sheriff station and talks to Lucy. Uh the first time those two have connected. Uh, this season and uh, we get one of those uh, very classic Twin Peaks The Return comedy moments where they just sort of let a beat linger for a really really long time Uh, you know Gordon calls and says oh you're still here Lucy and Lucy says well you know not the whole time me and me and Andy have been to what did you say Bora Bora or something like that yeah yeah, they've gone home, they've come back, they've gone to Bora Bora, you know, completely <laughs> normal response to that question. Yes, exactly. And uh, Gordon is uh, understandably speechless uh, for, for, a good, for a good moment here. Um, yeah, so the, the real meat of the scene comes when Gordon connects with Frank Truman. And uh, they have a little short conversation here wherein Frank talks about the discovery of Laura's diary pages. And he mentions that there's some indication within these pages um, that there are two Coopers, uh, which obviously checks out to Cole, uh, given what he has seen of, of Mr. C in this season. So yeah, there's that. Not too much happens here. I, I There's probably a lot more that they could have talked about with regards to this. Like, a lot of these interactions in the, the Twin Peaks Sheriff Station, particularly with Frank, like, between him and, and Gordon and uh, him and Ben, uh, you definitely get the sense that there could be a lot more, but uh, it's 
the show has a way of uh, withholding information from you in that way where it's like part of you just wants to scream like mention x y and z and you know just so you can sort of get the the gears rolling a little bit but uh we don't really get too much of that here i guess while we're in buckhorn let's talk about the blue rose because we get a little bit more information here albert tells tammy uh all about the lois duffy incident and uh i like this scene partly because it is very reminiscent to me of the scene from Firewalk with me where uh, Gordon and, um, or rather, Chet Desmond and uh, Keith Sutherland's character, I believe, are having a conversation that's sort of like this where that sort of reminds me of when Albert is sort of quizzing Tammy, like, oh, what's important about the Blue Rose and what's the significance of that? Um, mm-hmm. That reminded me of that. John, did you get that vibe as well? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's not exactly like interpreting Lil events. You know, this is a little different because Tammy's just getting the information firsthand right then. But, um, but yeah, there's definitely some kind of resonance there. Yeah, and she's she's very quick to uh, intuit what exactly the significance of the Blue Rose is and what's happening with, with Lois Duffy. And notably, when uh, Albert is explaining this whole situation with... One Lois Duffy killing another Lois Duffy. Uh, Gordon Cole and Philip Jeffries were the uh, arresting officers that were there at the time. So it's just more of this uh, sort of shading in the backstory of the Blue Rose Task Force. I, I kind of like all the stuff that we get that sort of implies that, uh, you know, Cole and and Jeffries and, and Chet were all... all uh, all working together pretty closely because you know prior to that all we get is that really weird scene in firehawk with me and it just adds a lot more context uh to some of the things that we see in that movie uh we're gonna get uh, a couple couple incidents of that in this episode where uh it's just bringing more richness and more depth to that movie I, i really appreciate it that's something i love about this season in particular is how much it really did lean on Firewalk with me. And I found it interesting that Tammy's knowledge of tulpas, um, I don't know if we're meant to interpret that she's just sort of come across that in her studies or if she's um, has some sort of prior knowledge about the Blue Rose Task Force and all that stuff. But I did find it interesting how of all the things she intuits, um, she she recognizes that the, the two lowest stuffies, one of them, is I think she calls it a construct or a tulpa, which I found kind of interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's pretty much it. Just filling a little, uh, little backstory about the Blue Rose Task Force. Tammy, you recall in part 12, was made an official member of the task force. And uh, now we just get Albert sort of uh, getting her in a little bit deeper into to all the goings on of this uh, this mysterious uh, little group that they have here, uh, and then we get some some prime meme material here when uh, Gordon busts in with a thumbs up and, and says "coffee time." <laughs> this and also the uh, the window cleaning man uh, <laughs> with Gordon being forced to to turn down his hearing aid are both just uh like I said, there's prime prime meme material that you, you tend to see a lot. It's 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 really good. I enjoy it. Uh, 
you've got to love the commitment to like Gordon Cole is hard of hearing the gag. Like it, it really comes up like five or six times in this episode particularly, but that's a good old fashioned 25 year old gag that to me, to me doesn't get super old. It, it grates on you sometimes, but it's good for a laugh every now and again. Yeah. Well, this is, this is some intentional greeting uh, with the window washer, I think. And uh, I just love, I love David Lynch's really like over the top performance of just being assaulted by this. Um, and uh having to turn down his hearing uh he he really sells it it's really good and yeah gordon's gordon's whole hearing thing is a little bit weird especially in this season it's it's unclear the degree to which he actually has a hearing problem and sometimes it's putting it on for show because like sometimes he just doesn't really seem to have an issue with it at all i don't know at least that's the sense that i get my take on that whole thing is that Gordon's just tuned to a totally different channel than most people. And like, I mean, I'm, I'm working on a grand overall theory, I guess, if you have to put it where, um, you know, there, there's a lodge universe and then there's the physical universe and like the, the tuning between the two, like you, you have to like, um, you know, it's like you, you have to, you have to want to look at one versus the other in order to be tuned to it. And like, it takes a little while, you know, like uh, that, that scene in part four, when, um, when, when Gordon's talking to Albert and he has to say, Albert, Albert, Albert. And, you know, like there's like the, the yards of um, just weird kind of almost uh, ambient noise in between it. Like that Gordon just seems to be able to tune uh, from one to the other and like, you know, call, you know, saying coffee time and everything. And say, it, it seems like, uh, you know, talking about Tulpa and Blue Rose and everything, it's almost like they were tuned to the esoteric sort of frequency and like the, um, the, the window washer and like all the mundane stuff. It was just like really grating because it was at a completely different frequency than anybody was at at that particular time. And like, I don't, yeah, I mean, I'm not, I'm not going like totally off the rails and thinking that like they were in one reality versus another exactly, but like I think thematically we're supposed to kind of get that impression with those sorts of scenes. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. This idea that Gordon, his uh, his hearing aid is sort of a sort of a loose metaphor for being tuned into the uh, the you know the mysterious and the metaphysical and uh, the the lodge forces and all that. Mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. yeah i definitely buy I think that you, i think so. you could probably even read it on somewhat of a meta level as well in in how important sound design is to uh this show and the fact that he's got it cranked this whole time it's it's sort of a what we the we the viewers should probably be doing i feel like i should be watching every episode with headphones yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah absolutely and i even just thought about um you know the fact that he's sort of magically able to hear uh Shelly in season two too you know what I mean yeah yeah so yeah there's there's always layers always layers um so yeah so the other thing that happens in this scene is that Diane shows up and Mm -hmm. Albert shows her the ring that we got way back when I think in like part part five or something like that 
mm-hmm. um, this ring uh, that is inscribed to Dougie uh, with love, Janie E. Um, and yeah, this is pretty much the catalyst for Diane revealing the information that she is Janie E's, uh, I believe it's, it's half-sister, right? Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, this this information is really odd because it's it's obviously very significant. Like anytime you have a familial relationship between two major characters in this way, it's it obviously means something. But John, I guess I'll ask you. Like, what do you think is the the purpose behind the uh, the linkage between? Uh, Diane and Janie E, and do you even think that Diane is uh, reliable here? Like, is she telling the truth? Is this information about her half-sister something that has been programmed into her some way? Uh, do, do, do you have a take on all that? I I do, but not with any, like, definite, like, here's exactly how it works kind of ways. But like, yeah, I, I think that Diane's been programmed or she's like living in two different frequencies constantly. Um, I think I, I did a whole thing on like why, why Garland swallowed the ring. Um, but I'm almost wondering if it's actually a lot simpler than, you know, like, all the all the soap opera kind of steps that you have to take to connect everybody. Like I, I almost wonder if whoever whoever created the the Dougie Tulpa, you know, whether it's Doppel Cooper or whether it's Briggs, you know, it's like it doesn't really matter like who did it, but I almost wonder if if to anchor to it to anchor Dale Cooper into the Dougie switch. Like, you know, if if his uh, Blue Rose agents have to also know that Dougie Jones exists. Like, I, it's hard to explain, but like, there's an object permanence thing. Like in the in Secret History of the Twin Peaks, like the um, the owl ring was always in a pouch. You know, the Native Americans had it in a pouch. They gave it to Meriwether Lewis. He kept it in a pouch. But the second that thing came out, like things just got really wonky and out of control, and you can kind of see like other other object permanence kind of things happening too. Like with the glass box, um, Dale Cooper, nobody was in the room when uh, you know Sam was going out to get Tracy um, when Dale Cooper went through that room, and um, you know nobody nobody human was there to witness him going through, and um, you know they the Sam and Tracy were there when experiment model was coming through. So experiment model stuck. So I almost wonder if it's something that simple where um, the Blue Rose task force had to know that this ring was there and that it could connect to somebody in Vegas for Dale Cooper to be stuck to it. Right. I don't... Yeah, it's fascinating. Um, so do, yeah. you think, um, do you think that the ring was something that major briggs uh knowingly ingested or do you think that that was planted there by um you know presumably mr c or whoever was responsible for major briggs's death i think he knowingly ingested it but i don't really know why (laughs) you know it's like how tied into the whole thing is he i mean he's obviously um he's obviously with the fireman enough 
to you know have his head reside in you know fireman's house in mm-hmm. part seven so like i feel like he's he's getting messages just like andy just like freddie just like all those people that you know just like gail um you know like he, i i would not be shocked if um if the fireman got in touch with garland briggs and said swallow the ring hmm. and you know, like why? Who knows? I mean, <laughs> right? Yeah. Again, it, it's it's more important to be thematic than to be literally uh, plot uh, plot focused. Sure. Yeah. I, no. Yeah. I I totally agree. Um, yeah. We 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 tend to think that way on this podcast, but at the same time, like we there's part of uh, <laughs> me at least that just can't resist at least trying our best to sort of put this together in a linear way. Yeah. Um, and you know, everything going on with, with major Briggs, uh, is just like, uh, yeah, it's, it can be difficult to parse. You, you, uh, just, just wait till our, uh, our, uh, episode, uh, 13, where we talk about Raymond Rowe comes out. Cause, uh, <laughs> we really, oh, Jesus. oh man. Yeah. I, I avoid Ray just in general. Just, <laughs> you know, it's like, he, he's part of that whole thing that doesn't have to ever be concrete. So <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah. And I guess it's sort of fitting in with this idea that he's like this shady criminal slash FBI agent. Like there's, there's an air mm-hmm. of mystery around Ray and uh, an air of duplicitousness for sure. Uh, that, that definitely works on a thematic level. So, yeah. so yeah. So, the Blue Rose Task Force, they uh, they have a they have a reason to go to Vegas now essentially because um, Janie E mentions that uh, her sister uh, in Vegas is married to uh, this guy Douglas Jones and that they've been estranged for a number of years. Um, I guess maybe that would be one way of explaining why Diane doesn't just immediately say like, "Hey." Dougie Jones is Cooper. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like maybe she knows that um that Janie E is married to a guy named Dougie Jones, but since they haven't talked for several years, like maybe she just doesn't, you know, maybe she's never actually seen Dougie, you know. Or it could just, you know, it could just be all part of her programming. I don't, I don't think it's like Yeah. I don't think it's like especially important. Um Yeah. I mean people are people are programmed to forget all sorts of crazy stuff in this show. <laughs> yeah yeah for sure um so yeah and this scene ends with uh gordon giving a call to uh the fbi headquarters in las vegas to agent adley or rather he calls his call is intercepted by agent wilson uh who then goes to agent headley to uh tell him that you know gordon cole wants him to find dougie jones and you know there's like 23 douglas joneses in the area Mm mm-hmm and uh <laughs> Agent Headley uh is very upset with uh Agent Wilson here because after all this is what they do in the FBI. Headley berating Agent Wilson is a, a very fun gag uh in the late part of the season that I really love. Yeah, it's one of those just like completely over the top reactions that we get. Uh not like terribly dissimilar from in part 13 the uh the insanity that's going on in the i believe it's the las vegas uh, detective agency with the the detective fusco when there's that like crazy thing happening in the background <laughs> yeah it's just like 
we just get these little moments of uh, just complete absurdity that I, I tend to appreciate a lot. Yeah, it's one of those things that catches you so off guard the first time you see it that you can't you just can't help but laugh because it's just so extreme the way that he screams at him and slaps his desk. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I don't know. This show just has a way of uh, throwing curveballs at you uh, comedically in, in ways that you couldn't possibly expect. And this is definitely yeah. one of those. So yeah, let's talk about the Monica Bellucci dream. <laughs> one of the craziest, I mean, we knew that Monica Bellucci obviously was going to be involved with this season because we had seen the cast list that come out mm-hmm. prior to the season. And, you know, there was a lot of speculation about, you know, who who could Monica Bellucci possibly play? You know, how would she <laughs> fit into the Twin Peaks universe? And uh, everyone's guesses were right. She played Monica Bellucci <laughs> in uh, a dream had by Gordon Cole. Uh, mm-hmm. It was so obvious. You know, everybody was really tuned into this. Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah, so there's a lot. There's just so much that I love about this. Uh, first of all, I love Albert's <laughs> sort of off-screen reaction as soon as Gordon Cole says, I had another Monica Bellucci dream. <laughs> um, he says something. If you turn on the subtitles, you could say he says something like, oh, boy. And <laughs> Albert is just, like, bracing himself for the worst. Like, uh, you know, just some weird, some weird Gordon Cole-ism that's about to, that they're about to listen to. Um, oh man, I just, I just love that. So, boy, where to begin here? I guess I'll ask you, John, what do you, what do you think is being conveyed here through all this business with the dream and the dreamer and living inside the dreamer um do you uh, do you have any uh any strong takes on that oh man um. <laughs> I, know, I know it's i know it's a huge question given that we're we're talking about twin peaks but i i, I guess we we got to start somewhere here yeah um i mean if if i had my guess um man <laughs> i you, you know like the the seven different ideas are log jamming right now. And <laughs> sure. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's um, intentional. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. No, I think, um, just in general that, um, I, I think this is, um, this is Gordon Cole definitely getting tuned into, um, something else. And I think what, I mean, as as far as I'm concerned, I think that whole Philip Jeffries part, like after the Monica Bellucci part, is the unofficial version, kind of um, starting its tuning on him, so that like all the Judy Redcon stuff can actually like have a reason for being there, even though it's never been there before. Right. Um. But why was Monica Bellucci <laughs> introducing <laughs> an unofficial version? Um. I don't know, but like she, um, she seems to be part of the dream too. And I, I tend to basically think of the dream as like the dark lodge space. That's like, um, that's trying to like assert itself over the top of the timeline. Mm -hmm. And, um, if Monica Bellucci is in there, 
as part of a dream, it makes sense. Because, I mean, you know, uh, Dale in in episode two of season one, you know, he goes into Lodge space through a dream. So, like, I could completely understand that, you know, a different state of reality happens in dreams. And um, that, I, mean, I I don't know. I mean, it, it's, it's tough to say other than I, I really do think that um, Gordon's getting tuned to something different here. And um, I think, you know, like the way Albert says that, oh, I remember that, you know, right afterward. He's right. also, you know, like Gordon, Gordon saying it out loud um, kind of reinforces this dream state onto where they are. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and when, when you say, uh, when you say the, uh, the quote unquote, the unofficial version, mm-hmm. um, what, what exactly are you referring to there? Like the, uh, you're referring to uh, like the alternate timeline in which Laura was never killed. Essentially. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I think that's the unofficial version. I know a lot of other people think that, like, from the POV of where Philip Jeffries is, like, he would say the unofficial version is, um, you know, the old reality that got superimposed or whatever. But I kind of think that Jeffries is, you know, like, way disconnected from time. But I think he also understands, uh, you know, like Mark Frost was saying in one of those interviews, I think it was the Austin uh, Film Festival interview that he did, um, that basically Dale was making a deal with the devil at that point. So, like, I kind of feel like Jeffrey's, um, he's disconnected enough from time that, like, he, he says the truth in very particular ways to still get what he wants from people. Mm-hmm. And that, like, he, you know, he, as wackadoo as that guy is, like, he's not going to say it from his point of view. He's going to know which one's the official version and which one's the, the fake one. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, like, I, that's why I say the unofficial version is basically the, uh, the, the, you know, the timeline where, uh, Dale saves Laura. Yeah, it's, it's very difficult to, um, really get a bead on, Philip Jeffries, because I do, I do think of him as being a pretty unreliable, uh, unreliable narrator, I guess, mm-hmm. you know, and he is sort of somebody who is stuck between, between realms, uh, sort mm-hmm. of displaced from, from time. And, um, I think, yeah. I think about a little bit later in the season where, he is confronted by Mr. C and even he seems to be a little bit confused about what's going on. Like, mm-hmm. uh, like I don't have your number and, uh, Oh, you are Cooper. You know, like I think Philip Jeffries might be getting his, uh, his timelines <clears throat> mixed up a little bit. Um, which I guess we could yeah, really, hence, it's slippery in here. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. And yeah, it, it really, Again, just another uh, another way in which Fire Walk with Me has been uh, enriched and and uh, really given new significance. Um, when you see Philip Jeffries here pointing mm-hmm. at Cooper and saying, "Oh well, who do you think that is?" There, um, you know, even before season three, you know, obviously we we had some notion that he was possibly referring to uh, Cooper's doppelganger. But mm-hmm. just to have it have that 
that scene literally implanted into the season. Yeah. Um, I don't know. The, like the first time I saw it, it was just like the just like the hairs on my neck stood up because I don't know. Just how often do you get a piece of art from twenty five years ago that suddenly is just imbued with all this new meaning and context? It's just it's um it's a really mind blowing thing that <laughs> Lynch and Frost did here. Yeah. Yeah, it's amazing how the first like the first time I saw that scene with Philip Jeffries left me completely floored and it never really went away. So having some some kind of exposition on it in the third season was was like really a big part of what I wanted to see. But I find it really um, interesting. There's a few instances of of memory loss in this episode and. There's, of course, this one where it, it seems apparent that Philip, I mean, that uh, Gordon Cole and Albert, neither of them tended to have or seem to have remembered that that interaction with Philip Jeffries, which is odd because it's clearly a, a very memorable Seems like the kind of thing you would remember, right? Yeah, I think so. And then we also have um, Hawk and Frank Truman and Bobby Briggs having really no memory of what happened after they leave Jackrabbit's palace. And then we have Megan who may, this may or may not matter, but Megan can't remember if her uncle was there or not, which it seems as if anyone who sort of interacts with, with this um, lodge space kind of loses a bit of their um, continuity in their memory. And I think that must have something to do with, the 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 roadhouse sequences that we're seeing and it's almost like as if maybe in the unofficial version because I, I i have a feeling that that is sort of what we're seeing with all of these characters that we're completely unfamiliar with it's the unofficial version of twin peaks the one that they're speaking like we should know who they are but we really have absolutely no idea and their lack of memory kind of like ties that these things together for me in some in some way yeah, I, uh, I'm, I'm pretty close to your uh, your point of view on that one, but I think you'll like what I have to say about that later on. <laughs> Can't wait. <laughs> cool, cool. Um, yeah, and I guess just one last point about the the Monica Bellucci dreaminess of it all. <laughs> when this whole this whole sequence here and this uh what gordon calls uh the ancient phrase uh you know we are like the dreamer who dreams and then lives inside of the dream but who is the dreamer uh to me i really feel like in this moment we're really being encouraged to to a certain extent think outside the narrative in a certain way mm-hmm. and it's getting to this idea that Lynch gets to a lot that, you know, dreams are sort of another, um, sort of just like another plane of, of understanding or just like, um, being, uh, sort of, um, a metaphor for the notion of subjectivity. And I I think that when he's talking about the dreamer and who is the dreamer, I, I believe he's talking about us, um, as, as the audience and the fact that he chose to insert, 
this real world person who has nothing whatsoever to do with Twin Peaks only reinforces that. Yeah. I would say, I would say that's like a a 100% angle on it. But, um, I think also it, it works on a different level. I, I think it works on a different level too. And that, um, uh, Shoot, I just lost my train of thought. <laughs> no, that's cool. That's cool. Yeah, uh, like it, it's you know it, you know nothing in this show ever just means one thing. So it's you know, it's especially when you're talking about dreams and Lynch. It's like yeah. there are a million directions you could you could go off from there. Yeah. Ah, darn it. <laughs> now I'm forgetting. <laughs> oh geez, I think we're we we might be slipping into the uh the unofficial version. Um. Mm. But yeah, yeah, and significantly, uh, you know, like you mentioned, uh, the scene ends with Albert, you know, very significantly, in my opinion, saying, I'm beginning to remember that too. Yeah. Um, Like, it's sort of a bleed through between these two, between these two realities. Because like, like we said, like, how, like, how could you possibly just not remember that, you know? Yeah. Like this FBI agent that you have this relationship with, presumably who just goes missing for however long, what, like two or three years, something mm-hmm. like that. Um, yeah. It's just, there's no way that you could just forget something like, like that. There's, there has to be some sort of something deeper going on there in my opinion. Yeah. Yep. And one, why I think that um, it's an unofficial version is also that whole, you know, like everybody was talking about, like, why would he change this to that? You know, like, who do you think that is there? Who do you think this is there? And um, I've heard that it was like an alternate take of that scene, too. Like, I'm not exactly sure if the footage itself was um, recorded uh, differently or what. But um, besides the voiceover, like, it's possible that, like, it's a reflection of the Firewalk With Me scene. You know, it's like, oh, it, it's right. like the edited and I don't know. It, it's just, uh, well, I think, yeah, I think like, from what I heard, um, and it's hard to know how true this is, but mm-hmm. I think from, from what I heard is that Bowie, you know, while he gave his blessing, uh, yeah. to be used in the scene, he, he was unhappy with his, uh, ridiculous Louisiana accent <laughs> and, yeah. um, didn't want them to actually use his voice so they hired uh somebody else to do it we do know that somebody else is voicing jeffries in this scene yeah um but what yeah why they changed that just that subtle bit of dialogue to um i think he originally says who do you think this is there right and then they changed it to who do you think that is there if i remember mm-hmm. recall yeah um yeah that's very odd I don't <laughs> would have gotten picked up in editing one way or another. You know, it's like maybe they left it in as a happy accident and it wasn't absolutely intended at the beginning, but like I think it kind of feeds into that whole thing, like where things are just off. Sure. Yeah, yeah. There's something where that scene occurs in um like in I think the first cut of Firewalk with me, it occurs maybe like a year before the Teresa Banks murder or a year before the Laura Palmer murder. And then in the uh, missing pieces, I think it occurs 
uh, just like a few days or a few weeks before, there's some sort of, it's, I know it's covered in a video um, by the YouTube channel, Take the Ring, um, but I'm, I'm a little fuzzy on the details, but I know there is some sort of continuity thing there where it initially took place like a whole year prior to, to the official version. Yeah, gotcha. Right, because, yeah, I think it's supposed to be taking place in 88. Mm-hmm. And I think I think Cooper says it's 89 or something like that. I don't really remember the details of that. I, I think it was just kind of a... I think it was kind of a boo-boo on, uh, mm-hmm. on, on Lich's part. Interesting that Cooper says it is taking place on 10-10-1988, I believe, or 1987 or whatever he says. Right, yeah, which is pretty pretty close to the uh the um the timeline that we we have for this show i think it's taking place in like late september early october something like that yeah Mm yeah so yeah um yeah like i said there's just there's so much going on there uh with monica bellucci and uh philip jeffries but should probably move on uh and talk about what happens with the Twin Peaks Sheriff's Department in this episode? Uh, this is the episode in which uh, Bobby, Hawk, Andy, and Frank uh, head up to Jack Rabbit's palace. Uh, well, first they arrest Chad. Let's 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 establish that. <laughs> yeah, real quick. Uh, Chad, uh, just the the gloriously. Uh, asshole-ish Chad finally gets what's coming to him. Uh, mm-hmm. They've apparently been on to him for some time, uh, which is a delightful surprise, uh, at least for me, the way that they all pull their guns out on him. So they, they send him to jail, <laughs> and with that bit of business done, they, they head off to Jack Rabbit's Palace. Really love this sequence here of them walking. Just really beautiful cinematography here. I really appreciate the way that the trees are are, are are shot and I also really like the shot of the electrical wires that we get uh, right before yeah. that mm-hmm. uh, very ominous you know just the classic uh, electrical buzzing sounds yep. um, it's, it's very uh, it's a, some foreshadowing that we're about to get some some lodgy lodgy weirdness uh, it's usually what that means uh, so yeah, they go to Jack Rabbit's palace, and Bobby is really, um, he's he just has a big smile on his face the whole time they're doing this. Like even though, uh, you know, they have no idea what they're really in for. Bobby is sort of having a memory of his father and talking about how his dad took him here, and um, really sort of reminiscing about his dad. So this is actually um, a pretty pretty wistful pretty happy uh sequence for bobby here uh which which i really appreciated yeah yeah i'm just i'm such a sucker for just anything (laughs) anything that hints at the relationship between bobby and major briggs Uh, i just i always love that stuff so yeah they make it to jackrabbit's palace and uh they follow the instructions left to them by major briggs uh in that weird tube thing that bobby Mm -hmm. threw to the ground they put some soil in their pockets and they walk 253 yards east i believe it is Mm -hmm. yeah and then what they see is a cloud of smoke and naido 
who we have not seen since part three. Very surprising to see her here. Uh, she <laughs> is lying nude uh, in amongst all this smoke, and she is near a gold puddle, uh, which I think you know you could pretty easily draw a parallel between this puddle and the scorched engine oil at Glastonbury Grove. Mm-hmm. Um, just sort of yeah. lending more credence to the idea that the fireman's house is indeed the White Lodge. If the if the Black Lodge produces this these black puddles, then the White Lodge produces gold puddles. I don't think it's that crazy to uh, to make that connection there, right? Yeah, yeah, I'm on board. Yep, fair enough. Um, so, are we all just to make sure? Are we all on? We're all like pretty much hundred percent on board with the uh, the notion that the fireman's house and the White Lodge are one and the same. I am. John? Yeah, I, I've I've seen enough. Like, of course, I can't cite my sources, but Lynch has been talking about how like how he's never shown the White Lodge on screen and everything, and uh, he's talked about the waiting room as a junction point and everything. So I I kind of feel like. It's it's a junction point to the White Lodge, but not exactly the White Lodge itself. Mm. So, by the so same you, token, do you think that the... Uh, sorry, go ahead. <laughs> let's just split a hair. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, sure. And by the same by the same token, would you say that the, you know, the quote-unquote Red Room uh, would serve the same function to the Black Lodge and that we don't actually yeah. see the Black Lodge proper? Because that, that's actually something that I've thought a lot about as well. Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, like, unless maybe that one time when um, when the curtains went away and it was it was all black with the white horse in the background, that's possibly us seeing the black lodge. But mm-hmm. uh, yeah, otherwise, I I, I just kind of think it's you know like just something that humans just can't comprehend. So we you know we just don't see it. I was gonna say I feel like the just the names white lodge and black lodge are almost like it's part of like maybe this double naming convention that we we see a lot like those are what people call these spaces like annie refers to the waiting room as the black lodge um somehow and that just be it could be an indicator that that's how she's referring to it and then same with the white lodge and the fireman's house and we sort of have like multiple names like the red room the waiting room the black lodge um, multiple names for all of these different spaces, and yeah, I'm, I, 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 too, get the sense that maybe we're not seeing these lodges proper, but rather like I don't know. I'm, I'm also not really sure exactly of like the disconnection between them because we see electricity wires uh, all the time preceding Black Lodge activity, and now here we see them also preceding White Lodge activity. So, or quote unquote White Lodge. There was also the sun shining through the trees too, and that's kind of like the. Uh, mm-hmm. you, you see it a lot, like with um, you know Ed and Norma at the diner. You know the the sun shining straight through there. Um, when um, when Andy and Lucy are right. buying the chair, like there's the sun shining through. So like it, I, I think the sun shining through kind of trumps the electricity in this point. Hmm. Oh yeah, it could be too. Like if electricity is similar to like what we see as um fire on hawk's living map that it too can sort of work both ways because like just for example like electricity can power a life support machine and it can also power an electric chair so it's really like if the sun is shining through the electricity it's not necessarily inherently evil it's just a, a, a tool 
Yeah, it's the intention of the fire, right? Exactly, yeah. Yeah, so... Andy being sucked up through this portal uh, into the uh, the White Lodge, uh, as I'll, I'll refer to it as just the White Lodge, mm-hmm. um, this was as shocking a moment <laughs> as any that happened during the return, <laughs> just because Andy is a character that really dating back to the original season, although he did have you know moments of moments of weightiness he was mostly there as a a comic relief Mm -hmm. and in this season that was especially true like all that we've seen from andy prior to this point is like all the all the like andy and lucy goofy silliness and so to see like that side of twin peaks intersect so forcefully with this completely other side of Twin Peaks, all this lodginess was just like it was like mm-hmm. whoa, <laughs> this is yeah, this is like this is very serious right now. Yeah, some weird things happen here. First of all, this whole two chair setup that they have going on here is very similar to the uh, the Red Room, right? It's like mm-hmm. to me, it's notable that there's like there's a symmetry there, like this the setup of two figures uh, across from each other in, in chairs and one is being relayed messages by this mysterious being using all these cryptic means. Um, again, just giving further credence to the idea that, you know, these two spaces are uh, sort of like funhouse mirror images of each other to a certain extent. Mm-hmm. I think we get that in part eight when we get the like our introduction to this space through the reflection of that golden substance, whatever it is, like in the in the middle of that whole sequence, like it almost does have like this. Like I think we're being told that this is somewhat of a mirror image. Oh, I don't. Yeah, the um, right, the uh, the big re- reflective gold uh thing that looks kind of like the tulpa seed you mean exactly yeah right, right, like right. that's sort of the, that's the, our introduction to this sequence or this whole space which i find somewhat significant right right so the fireman as we now know him to be raises his hand and an object teleports into andy's hands i tried to get a good look at what it is that he's holding but I couldn't really make it out. It's like some, it's an object that is composed of like, uh, like triangular shapes. It's almost like some weird pineapple-ish thing that has a, a spout on the end of it that unleashes all this smoke. I don't know. I have no idea what he's holding here. Me neither. At first I thought it was like a, something like jumping man's mask or the magician's mask with like the pointy nose, but, or like a talisman of some kind, but I really got no idea. Yeah. Yeah. The, the function of this thing is that it unleashes a, a plume of smoke that leads upward and Andy looks up and he essentially receives a download of information uh, mm-hmm. sort of like a sort of like matrix style uh, where he's like in the chair and he sees all this iconography from across the show's history he sees the events of part eight uh, with uh, you know the birth of Bob and uh, the emergence of the woodsman 
He also sees things like Laura being flanked by the angels, uh, two Coopers separating, uh, the number six pole. Uh, He also gets a vision of the future uh, involving Lucy, a vision of Nido, just all these things that apparently he really intuitively understands because as soon as he's out of here, he is very purposeful and seems to know exactly what to do. Um, which again is just a shock because he's Andy and he's never sure of anything. <laughs> so yeah, again, just very odd. Everything that's happening here. Do you, do you guys have any thoughts on this scene? Uh, the 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 transparent like duplicates that they that appear like walking in circles, similar to the woodsman after Andy receives his vision. I found that to be very very interesting. Almost as if it was telling us that there is uh, just multiple iterations of this event happening and that sort of coalesce into this one. Like uh, similar to the the way that the two Coopers looked kind of like overlaid over each other moving back and forth. Yeah, but, you're talking uh, about you're talking about immediately afterwards, right? At Jack Rabbit's Palace? Yep. Yeah, like right right after Andy gets his vision and, and, and all that. Another thing I thought was interesting was that he sort of looks up into what looks like another pool like a white pool type thing to get this vision. Mm-hmm. Um, not sure what that could mean, but I found it interesting. Um, but yeah, I don't know exactly what to, I mean, we obviously know what, what Lucy in the future uh, could be a premonition of, uh, but the whole Lara being flanked by the angels, that's one that's sort of, that sat with me since fire walk with me. And I haven't ever really been sure exactly what to make of it. So I was really, excited to see it again here although it didn't really tell me much yeah it's it's a really powerful image uh from firewalk with me and it's you know i it's just lynch like once again just insisting upon the importance of laura you know because we haven't really get we haven't really been getting a lot of laura recently and it's just sort of signaling to us like hey you know laura is about to be really important here you know, it's, it's not an accident that her image is inserted here along with all, all this other really important uh, iconography that the fireman wants to communicate to Andy. So, but yeah, these transparent representations of the Frank, Andy, Hawk, and Bobby, mm-hmm. and very notably there's it's not just that they're transparent and reappearing into the physical realm but there's also multiple duplicates of them you know it in a show that deals pretty explicitly with alternate timelines and unofficial versions as we call it it's like well this is almost as explicit a uh, a depiction of that as we get right yeah yeah, it's one of my big proofs for, um, I, uh, the, the thing that I'm working on right now is basically how, um, okay. So Dale Cooper, he seems like he's going through time loops, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You, you can kind of go with that. You know, like every time he sees Philip Gerard, uh, saying is a future or is it the past? Um, you know, it, it seems like he's starting over again. Um, I kind of feel like what's happening is his loops are happening chronologically for him, but at the exact same time as the timeline for everybody else. And um, 
it's it's almost like when when you're at a lodge portal like all three of those loops are happening at the same exact time mm-hmm. and that's kind of what i think is happening like with the flickering and everything um of of the the deputies and and uh, frank um it's really hard to describe though again <laughs> <laughs> it's uh I, I kind of feel also like um, in An- Andy's vision, like the uh, the three number six poles, you know, those could be like the three different um, number sixes along with Dale's loops, or it could be multiple timelines or whatever it is. You know, it's like, it seems like all of it is kind of converging at the same time and they all relate to each other regardless of like what you think it is. And like all these different frequencies seem to, relate back to as far as i'm concerned like the two angels of the uh, you know flanking laura hmm. you know it's like there's 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 the universe the, yeah there's the universe where laura uh, dies and then there's the universe where laura doesn't sure so like it, it seems like um i don't know it's, it's like they're they're both happening at the same time and i mean as far as i'm concerned uh, it goes back to Margaret talking to Hawk at part 10. You know, it's like there's a, a dream of a time and space coming at us like a like a river. Right. And, um, right. You know, it's like the dream of a time and space is that lodge dream that um, Dale is basically manufactured where Laura is saved. And I mean, that that's the big that's the big polarity here that um, I think we're seeing in Andy's vision, except I, it's hard for me to really describe without going into the 22 pages that I have written. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. So out of that space. Yeah, no, it's, yeah, every, everything you're saying definitely uh, resonates with me. And um, yeah, I'm glad you mentioned the, the number six pull as well, because the way that that is represented is notable in my opinion, because we get, it's represented in Andy's vision in a couple different ways. It's like mm-hmm. we first see it as a like a black and white image, I think, and yeah. then it, it sort of transitions to uh, like a, a full color image from like a slightly mm-hmm. different angle, and yeah. it, it reminded me of the uh, the black you know the black and white to color transition that we're gonna see a little bit later with Cooper mm-hmm. rescuing Laura, which which is like a very explicit. Uh, diverging point um, I, yeah. I think in, the, in these in these timelines so a lot going on here and like we said Andy is very adamant as soon as they get out of there that uh, NATO is important and that there's people who want her dead and that it's extremely vital that he carry her back to the uh, sheriff station and when they do so um, she gets put in uh, the jail along with Chad, as we've established, uh, as well as the drunk man. The drunk is interesting to me. I sort of subscribe a little bit to a theory that I've seen around that the drunk is like sort of a manifestation of like Chad's imagination. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, you know, because we never really see 
any other characters interacting with the drunk and the drunk seems to react specifically in a way that is going to rankle chad at all times you yeah. know he uh he sort of contributes to this cacophony that happens in the jail where naito is making her her uh sort of monkey like sounds and then um, you know the drunk is mimicking her and mimicking chad and shut up shut up and all this sort of stuff i don't know that's that's uh that's personally that's a theory that i kind of subscribe to yeah i can go with that i just find it funny that even in this moment chad is still like the only person in the twin peak <laughs> chef department that's acting like a normal person He's just yeah. like, what the fuck is wrong with you? Like, what? Why do you keep doing that? Stop! Shut up! <laughs> um, yeah, which is, uh, he's very human, that Chad. Yeah, he's he he plays the straight man a lot, which is which is really <laughs> which is really fun. Um, yeah, so that's that. I, yeah, we also should mention the theory that the drunk is Billy, which um, I guess would be supported by the idea that. We Billy was bleeding from the nose and mouth, uh, mm-hmm. and then we see another character bleeding from the nose and mouth. Um, I sure, I guess. I mean, I don't really know how the timelines work there. Like, like because based on the way that, uh, I don't know. It's it's hard to say because we don't know when that Megan scene takes place because the way that she talks right. about it, like the inc- the Billy incident happened, uh, you know, a while back. So it's it's hard to say. I don't I don't even know that it matters necessarily if he's Billy or not. Mm-hmm. I think yeah, if he is Billy, then it definitely doesn't matter because we know <laughs> that it's of no consequence. Um, and if it isn't Billy, it still apparently doesn't matter. Um, I don't know about the whole like the bleeding from the nose or mouth thing, just because I mean he's obviously clearly has blood on him, but they do that mm-hmm. very deliberate shot of whatever is dripping from his mouth on the floor and it appears to be like a yellowy kind of like it doesn't look like a pool of blood to me not that again not that it really matters that much but um i i do kind of like this idea that he is a singular entity just to annoy chad um for for having dealings with richard horn and and other local scumbags mm-hmm. yeah it's it's true it doesn't quite look like blood to me it looked like I don't know, like sort of a mixture, maybe of like blood and pus or some sort of <laughs> yeah, disgusting. It's kind of oily. Uh, I don't know, it's gross. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But anyways, so yeah, let's let's stick around in Twin Peaks and talk about the uh, the tale of of Freddy. This scene, well, first of all, I think that this episode is notable in the way that it differs from a lot of other episodes this season. Because whereas a lot of other episodes will be filled with these sort of one-off scenes and um, sort of these short little vignettes, this episode is pretty much just like like five or six distinct, like really meaty scenes. And mm-hmm. quite a few of them involve storytelling like we'll see one character the sort of um relaying giving a big download of information to another character mm-hmm. we see that several times in this uh episode and it's pretty unusual uh for this season um and this is 
one of the oddest ones. <laughs> uh, because Freddy is a character that we only see once before this. He walks into the roadhouse with James and says something to the effect of, like, this place is dogs bullocks or something like that. <laughs> and uh, I truthfully didn't even I, I truthfully didn't even recognize him when I saw him again in this episode just because part two felt like a million years ago. Uh, yeah, I didn't point. either. But yeah. Um, I didn't notice the glove. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So he can't crack walnuts because he's too strong. <laughs> which is a funny way of illustrating uh, the idea that somebody doesn't know their own strength. <laughs> he's literally, he's just destroying these walnuts and uh, he needs James to, to open them up for him. Um, and apparently this green glove is like a part of Freddy. He, he cannot take it off. He says that when a doctor tried to take it off, there was just blood everywhere. Um, <laughs> Which is a disturbing thought. Uh, that is just like the glove is the glove is like literally his. It's like his flesh now. Yeah. But yeah, so this is just like a weirdly. What's the what's the word I'm looking for? Like straightforward, explicit, detailed chronicle of an encounter with the White Lodge and the firemen. Like, usually these sorts of encounters are conveyed cinematically in a very deliberate and cryptic fashion. But here it's just very matter of fact. Like, yeah, I was walking along and then I climbed some boxes and I saw the fireman and he told me X, Y, and Z and blah, 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 and told me exactly what to do. It's just like, um, yeah, I don't know. It's very strange. I was really caught off guard by this whole thing. Yeah. I mean, could you imagine what would happen if um, if the fireman actually gave that kind of information to Dale Cooper? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I was like, how come how come the fireman speaks so cryptically to everybody else? But with Freddie, he's just like, look, man, uh, you gotta go, to, you gotta go to the convenience store, you gotta fly here, you gotta do X, Y, Z. Yeah, it, it has a bit of a Deus Ex Machina thing. Like, it's just uh, so yeah, to say the least, so very much. Uh, on the nose that it's is it must be a, a, an intentional thing like it it is and it's also so preposterous that yeah. there's no way you're supposed to read anything else other than like deus ex machina like this is just the means to the end yeah, yeah. There, there's some really strong parodic elements to to freddy that i think we're gonna get into in more detail once we get to his uh his epic uh rock'em sock'em robots uh fight <laughs> with uh with bob in part 17 but uh yeah i don't know it just it, it did get me thinking though just the <laughs> the detail of instructions that he gets from the firemen it made me think that well actually you know, we see the instructions given to Cooper by the firemen, you know, this whole Richard and Linda 430 thing. It sounds really cryptic to us, but Cooper apparently understands it exactly. So yeah. so maybe it was a similar thing with Freddy where he just gets sucked up there and he's sitting in the chair and the fireman says a bunch of fragmented weirdness for him and maybe mm -hmm. shows him a few images and he just knows instinctively like, oh, this is what I have to do. 
So. Yeah, that's true, because that's like with Andy, who says mm-hmm. that uh, mm-hmm. people are trying to kill her and like all this other stuff that had absolutely nothing to do with the art film he watched. <laughs> yeah, the uh, Twin Peaks clip compilation that uh, yeah. that the fireman showed him. Uh, yeah, so... And, um, so yeah, so Freddy, he, uh, there's this whole story about him being forced to steal the green glove because the guy at the hardware store doesn't want to sell him a half open package. And then, <laughs> uh, Freddy uses a bunch of, uh, British slang here to describe his encounter with this guy saying that, oh, he was a job's worth and that he snapped his Gregory and all this stuff. Yeah. <laughs> 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 I'm going to start using yeah. Gregory for jaw from now on. Talk to all my students. Yeah. Like, hey, shut your Gregory. I was so, I was so confused. Like, like when he says, I, I fear I snapped his Gregory. I was so, um, like intrigued by this just cause you know, obviously <laughs> I'm not British and I don't know what it is, but I was looking at it and apparently it's like the term Gregory comes from, uh, Gregory Peck, the actor. And it's like Peck huh. rhymes with neck. So like, that's oh. how you get, neck meeting gregory or like mm-hmm. jaw i don't know it's just like wow, oh. okay interesting yeah yeah so he snapped his gregory i just want to do a quick shout out to uh the beatles reference that freddie makes oh um, yeah the yeah. day in the life reference got up uh dragged a comb across my head i'm a giant beatles fan i was just not not yep. expecting a beatles reference in twin peaks for some reason no no, although uh, Lynch and Frost are pretty much exactly the right age to be uh, be a part of Beatlemania. Yeah, so. mm-hmm. and it really matches up pretty well because you know you got the one like day in the life of like just a regular, a re- you know regular, just mundane stuff that you do, and then like you fall into a dream. Yeah. Yep. Exactly. So yeah, Freddie he moves to Twin Peaks because he has to find his destiny. And uh, James <laughs> um, reacts in the most James way possible, which is just sort of like, <laughs> wow, it's a great story. Anyways, not going to ask any follow-up questions. Just going to move on. Because I'm James and I have, there's nothing going on upstairs and I have no intellectual curiosity about any of this. Uh, nothing he strange about this thing. He just takes everything as it is and accepts it. Yeah, he just he takes everything in stride, you know. Uh, <laughs> they they have a brief conversation about how uh, James is gonna go to the roadhouse to try to meet with Renee, even though Renee is a married woman. But eh, James is just like, well, you know, no big yeah. deal. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so yeah. Um, speaking of James, the last little bit that we get here is him investigating this hum that we've heard before in mm-hmm. the great northern basement this is a little bit of foreshadowing for part 17 uh where we're gonna see cooper come down to the basement and use his room key to open the door and meet mike it also made me think of the um the european pilot right mm-hmm. where uh they come down yeah. and they uh they, they see bob in the in, in the basement and all that yeah um, I, part of me was really expecting to see Bob when this happened. <laughs> yeah, I've always wondered if that hum was associated with, with either Bob or the Lodge or, or something like that. And I thought for sure we were going to have James, of all people, encounter uh, what is at the heart of that mystery. But 
of course we just get a door and then cut <laughs> it's like oh okay yeah i mean we just had andy in the white lodge so who knows what the hell's gonna happen like how could you really yeah. be surprised if uh you know james <laughs> you know james get involved in, in all this business so mm-hmm. no that was point Sorry. for joe's cameo oh yeah yeah uh-huh <laughs> poor joan chen yeah oh yeah uh yeah, I would have, I would have liked to have seen them uh, right some wrongs with uh, the character of Josie, uh, because <laughs> I, I am definitely somebody who uh, was not not a big fan of the way that the Josie storyline unfolded. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I gotta say, and yeah, it's it's sad because I I really like the intrigue surrounding her character, particularly in the first season of the show. Yeah. You know, and I, I like her her love affair with uh, with Truman and all that, but boy, did they botch that storyline hard in season <laughs> two, in my opinion. Like, holy cow, does it go off the rails? Yep. Oh boy. Um. Yeah. Anyways, um, let's talk about just a, a doozy of a scene here with Sarah Palmer. Mm-hmm. She goes to a bar that we've never seen before called the Elks point number nine. And first off, I think it's telling that she goes to uh, a bar that we've never seen before. You know, you would expect that a character in twin peaks, if they're going to go have a beer somewhere, they'd probably go to the roadhouse just because Mm -hmm. that's where everybody seems to congregate. But uh, Sarah in all her, all her isolation, it's it's telling to me that she she goes to a bar that seems to have nobody that we that we recognized before. Like she, it's just further isolating her from the rest of Twin Peaks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and she she's just sitting having a beer, and uh, a guy with a ponytail and a shirt that says "Truck You" comes up uh, and starts hitting on her. It's basically Ted Nugent looks just like him it is acts just like him. yeah it's it's ted nugent or at the very least this guy has like ted nugent's greatest hits like on repeat in his truck you know what I mean? yeah yes yeah he is ted nugent's he, he was at the last show he voted for him yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he, did. he was he wrote in ted nugent uh, yeah uh yeah it's it's a world full of truck drivers you guys um yeah, yeah so she uh, rejects him, and he pretty instantly starts insulting her and threatening her and saying just all manner of just horrible, horrible stuff to her. And uh, she responds in a way that I think is one of the most compelling and indelible uh, moments from this show, which is she unhinges her face. Uh, mm-hmm. In a way similar to what we see Laura do earlier in the season, and except, uh, or instead of a blinding beam of radiant light, she has pure blackness and electricity crackling, and um, a giant hand with a big, darkened uh, ring finger, uh, aka the spiritual mound. And a smile, 
which we know is not, in fact, the Laura smile. And she says, do you really want to fuck with this? And the answer is no, because she bites his neck off almost. <laughs> and he instantly dies. <sighs> uh, definitely a big holy shit moment the first time through. I think I literally said holy shit uh, when this happened. This is just really... This is just really reinforcing something that we've gotten an idea about to this point in the show, which is that there's something going on with Sarah Palmer that is deeper than merely being a grieving, traumatized woman whose life has fallen apart. It appears as though she is, in fact, possessed by or, you know, under the thumb of uh, some sort of supernatural force here and a lot of people think that that force is probably judy and uh i'm inclined to to go with that john do you do you have a strong feeling about that well uh i um while i was looking for um information on the coordinates just just for you know i mean it it um it was supposed to be, you know, just for my curiosity, but like I, um, I came across this whole thing where in the final dossier, there's a whole thing about, um, a demon that Bob is trying to get to and everything. And, um, I kind of get the impression that experiment model is supposed to be that demon that he's looking for. And that with the glitch of the TV and part 13 and everything, that seems to me like, experiment model took a trip uh you know from new york through the electricity lines through that tv and found sarah palmer that way and basically either replaced her or inhabited her that's Mm. my guess on the whole thing i mean it's it's like (laughs) all the nuance removed but i mean like from point a to point b i kind of feel like that's mostly what happened and um you know, in part 12, uh, Sarah's saying, like, something happened to me and all that. You know, like, I, I kind of feel like it, it kind of happened around then. And I don't know if, like, the experiment model and her, her like, frog bug that possibly turned into Jumping Man, like, merged together. Or I, I don't really know exactly all that stuff. But it seems like that's all connected. And essentially what I think is uh, happening is that, you know, Sarah, she she finally caved into the darkness after being like totally broken by the whole Laura thing. And, um, she basically let the darkness in and the darkness won. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, Dylan and I talked a couple episodes ago that, mm-hmm. um, part, part of the reason everything with Sarah Palmer works so well is that it does, it works no matter how you look at it. Yep. Like, you know, on a metaphorical level of, this woman who is just completely destroyed by trauma, you know, and, yeah. and also, you know, a little girl who is subjected to, um, you know, who lives in a time where uh, the horrors of, of the world are, are expanding and proliferating at a rapid rate, you know, mm-hmm. and, and, and also, like you said, you know, this, the influence of this creature that is possibly an ancient evil and is possibly involved in some in some plot that we only have a vague idea about that is exerting influence over 
not just her, but a lot of the action in the show. Um, it's it, it's just for for those for that reason, I just I uh, I'm content to just sort of say with regards to Sarah Palmer, like yes, all of the above. <laughs> you know, like yeah. it, it all like it all works in in, in concert to me. You know, it's mm. everything that we see sort of just feeds into the same um emotional truth if that makes sense yeah yeah i i think that there's clearly like a a massive significance to her character um if only because she inhabits that house which becomes so central uh in the finale and i find it kind of interesting that the uh i've uh, the inhabitant of the house in the finale kind of looks to her right toward um, the direction that we hear the sound coming from when Hawk visits Sarah. So it's almost as if there is some kind of, uh, I don't know, there is uh, some sort of implicit something happening in that house. But I, yeah, like we, like we've talked about a bunch, like it, it works on every level. But I, I do like your, your theory, John, about how um, the television almost, glitching out seems to indicate that there's some sort of like i don't know short circuiting that could have been a result of this entity traveling through the electricity because we hear a very loud audible like zap every time the loop repeats which which is and again loops seem to be a um a a thing that we encounter a lot in this show whether that be like the the like the actual time loops and, and is it future or is it past as well as all of the circuit circular iconography that we see. Um, so, but yeah, as far as this, this scene goes, um, the, the thing that the, the smile is what really, what really gets to me just because if it's not Laura's smile, what is it? Uh, like what's the, like the, the spiritual mound finger, we kind of know what that is at this point. Uh, we have a little bit of information about it, but that that smile, um, if it's not Lars, then then what exactly could it be? That's what that's where I'm stuck. Not that it really matters, but I I don't know if this has been 100% verified, but I've heard that it's the um, the actor who plays Jumping Man, like that's his smile. Huh. Hmm. Yeah, I guess I mean, I guess uh, the reason to th- to want to believe that would be that we're I think in the next episode, you're gonna see the jumping man, tra- like uh, Sarah Palmer's face transposed onto the jumping man. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And obviously, there yeah, are uh, right. there are co- there are comparisons to be drawn between the uh, the frog bug, like you mentioned, John, uh, with its sort of long snout and yeah. jumping man. Um, so you know, I, uh, th- I mean, that would make sense, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, as, as far as like the, the TV theory, I think, you know, like we've established, we don't really know what order these scenes are happening in. That scene happens the episode after she goes to the store and, you know, fills up on, uh, you know, vodka and, and cigarettes and all that. <laughs> and in part 13, she appears to be like out, like you just see like these empty bottles and whatnot. So... <laughs> You know, it's entirely possible that the scene that we see in part 13 is taking place before the we see in part 12. Mm. You know, and that she's just going to, to restock up. So, I don't know. That was just a, just, a small, uh, just a small thought that I had about that. 
Um, well, you don't think Sarah Palmer can drink five handles of vodka in a day? Who do you think she is? <laughs> do you really I mean, I don't want to put anything past her. No. No, I don't. I certainly don't. Um, yeah. Also, just, man, she, she can really put away the cigarettes, too, can't she? Yeah, she's a real chimney. Holy cow. I really like this partly because it's one of the few instances in this show that we see of a woman being victimized and then being able to turn the tables and assert power over her abuser. You know, it's like sort of the inverse of part 10 where it was just like a parade of misery uh, where just all these all these god-awful men were just abusing the women in their lives and this is like a real satisfying moment because it, it is just like um such a such a direct like f you to uh to, to somebody who's who's trying to to exploit her and victimize her yeah for sure and immediately after she bites his neck she lets out a scream which might make you think like oh well maybe she's not a really aware of what's going on like maybe it was just like this dark force within her suddenly jumping out against her will mm-hmm. uh but then i think that idea sort of gets dampened when she has that line where she turns to the bartender and goes sure is a mystery huh mm-hmm. yeah, and the bartender sure. looks her in the eye and is clearly just like okay and starts backing away slowly um so yeah i think sarah i i think that she is a a conscious vessel for whatever this is i don't i don't think that she's um i don't think that she's in the dark about it at all personally i do too so uh kind of the the opposite of how i would view the diane tulpa sometimes i get the sense that like we've spoken about a bunch nick that she doesn't exactly always know that she's a tulpa or has has sort of conflicting motivations um in this sense i i definitely get that sarah is very much uh conscious and in control or or whatever sarah has become or whatever is inhabiting sarah yeah so i guess that just leaves the roadhouse um oh yeah just the roadhouse yeah where we get the tale of megan and sophie uh, it's worth noting here right off top that Sophie is played by Emily Stovall, who is the wife of David Lynch, and that Megan, curiously enough, is played by Shane Lynch, who is not related to David Lynch at all. Oh, wonderful. Yes. <laughs> totally normal. I love it. Yeah. Totally normal situation here. Um... So yeah, so I guess the important stuff that happens here is that we get Megan's whole spiel about uh, she and her mom, Tina, seeing Billy jump the fence with um, his, his nose and his mouth bleeding. The other thing that I think is worth mentioning here is that Sophie accuses Megan of getting high in what she calls the nut house. And if you subscribe to the idea that Audrey is perhaps locked in a mental institution mm-hmm. and that perhaps a lot of what we're seeing in the roadhouse are these fragments of, of her consciousness 
um, I I think that that adds strong evidence to that to to that idea. It, you know, in addition to obviously the fact that her dream was literally Billy bleeding from the nose and mouth. To me, this just really gets at this idea that the Roadhouse is a projection of Audrey to some extent. Yeah, at first when I heard Nuthouse, I thought it was going to be referring to the place where uh, we get the the peanuts being swept up. But then I remembered that's the Roadhouse. So uh, (laughs) there goes that. But yeah, I I definitely... I mean, I don't know what exactly to make of it and um, uh, of you know the connection between the roadhouse and audrey and because some you know we clearly have some characters that uh that are present in the finale like freddie and james um present at the roadhouse at the same time as audrey however Mm -hmm. we're not we're not exactly like i'm not exactly convinced that that has to be the same quote-unquote version of them um no no. This, yeah, but I, I, I really don't have a, a concrete theory at all on, on that. It to me, it's like every time I every every corner I look in, uh, something shines in another corner, and I get just have to look over there, and then all of a sudden, <laughs> nothing I'm saying makes sense. So that's where I'm at. All right. Well, I um, <laughs> I I kind of dissected all these roadhouse scenes because I think it fits in with my my big thesis that like basically. Um, there's the world where Laura died. There's the there, there's the world where Laura didn't. Mm-hmm. And, um, so there's, um, the, the one where Laura died is basically like a positive, a positive frequency. And the one where she didn't is kind of a negative frequency. So like, I kind of feel like these people at the roadhouse are at a middle point and at the end of their scenes, why we never see them again is because they've decided to send their energy positive or negative. And, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of big, but, um, there's, okay. So the roadhouse always has one of three, um, one of three introductions. There's the parking lot, there's the bang, bang bar sign. And then there's the bang, bang bar sign and a reflection, you know, like the, yep. If you see the reflection, like you get Richard Horn and those girls, or you get, you know, the, the rash girl. Um, so like you can kind of see that they're like tuned to the negative. Yeah. And, and if you see the regular bang, bang bar sign, you're generally tuned to the positive. And this one starts out with, with the regular bang, bang bar, uh, scene. I mean the, uh, the, the regular bang, bang bar establishing shot. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, it's like you hear, you hear, um, I mean, you, you see the, the one woman supporting the other lady who's basically talking about how, you know, it's like, I, I saw Billy bleeding from the mouth and everything. And, um, you know, but then it like starts to kind of fade away. Like she's coming out of the dream and like, she just kind of, you know, like she just doesn't even really talk about it one way or the other after a certain point. She just lets it trail off and it does fade away, kind of like how dream logic works when you wake up. Mm-hmm. Um, essentially, I think what happened there is that she decided to, um, you know, to not go with negative energy, but with positive energy. 
and therefore like she's um you know she kind of chose the uh the the right direction to go and um you know the next thing you see is lissy uh playing and it's like it's all high energy and you know it's like it's like her energy is moving and so is the song and it's lit and all this yellow and um you know it's just it's uh this one's a positive and i think pretty much the all the roadhouse scenes are just kind of showing us the world like that you know it's like uh it's like um you know you you don't have to go through the word salad or the name salad to you know figure out exactly who's connected to who or why you know just follow the energy of like how it flows and it it's kind of like you know, it's like there's the plot with Cooper and everything, and then there's just these scenes to kind of show you, like, this is kind of how the world works in in season three. And, you know, like you, you kind of get the way it flows uh, through, through the world building of, like, the roadhouse, and then, like, you can apply that to, like, Dale's quest or, you know, any, any of the other major plots that way. Wow, yeah, that's fascinating. Um I guess the question I would ask is like we, mm-hmm. we do get quite a few explicit connections to things that are said by Audrey at the Roadhouse. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you how do you see Audrey as as fitting into this this whole notion? Oh well, she's um, okay. Billy is a big um, a big indicator to me. I mean, he's basically like a street sign that says I'm of Lodge Space, mm-hmm. and it's like. And, you know, like basically Having anybody... to do with the, uh, the, the part seven ending too as well, right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. You know, it's like the mm-hmm. big switch at the end of part seven. It's like, you know, it, it the, the, the diner kind of tunes to the, to the negative aspect too at that point. And like, you know, things just keep getting darker and darker and darker. But, you know, it's like every once in a while you see people pushing through like these, like, like these two ladies at the end of the roadhouse. You know, it's like there is light that's also happening even though things are getting darker um but as far as audrey um you know it's i i kind of feel like she had she had trauma with her dad um in in final dossier especially uh they they go into like how um yeah it's how uh, she was protesting her dad selling the land uh to the prison i mean basically what ends up going to the prison um and, um, you know, so she seems to be able to get through that sort of, um, problem in her life, you know, like the, the trauma with her dad and everything, like, you know, she can get through that, but she's also pushing against this whole wide space aspect of her life. Cause I mean, essentially she and Sarah Palmer are the same exact thing because they, they both gave birth to a child that's, uh, you know, half you know like the the father is a lodge space person right mm-hmm. yeah yeah so like audrey like even though she's a strong character and th- this is why i think audrey's like really fascinating in season three to everyone is because like you know is she you know it, it, does she have her audrey agency or is she like you know, captured by the lodge or whatever. And I, I think, you know, it's like, she's being herself and like, she's kind of like splitting the, splitting the difference the whole way through. It's like, you know, she, she wants to get out from under this darkness that's in her life, but she just can't quite do it. 
Yeah. Yeah, it's the two different tones that she takes with Charlie. Like, the, the first time we see it is very classic Audrey, take no shit. And then the second time you see it, she's confused and, and disoriented and is clearly in a in a struggle uh, and is being tugged in two different directions. Yep. Yeah, I kind of thought she's mostly in lodge space. You think so? Yeah. Yeah, in, in part 12 and um, part... Was she in part 12 and 13? Uh, yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, yeah. It's like those scenes are basically the exact same thing with, like, sort of interchangeable dialogue. And then, like, she finally breaks through. I, I forget which episode. Maybe it's next one, like, where she, like, tries to strangle Charlie and says, I hate you. And you mm-hmm. just... Yeah, so, like, that's kind of, like, her breakthrough to be able to get out from the room she's in to the destination she thinks she wants to be in. And, um... I kind of think of the roadhouse as like this this nice in between zone between lodge space and and the timeline, and uh, mm-hmm. you know she just wants to get to this middle place instead of being stuck where she is, and she finally gets there. And then, like the the last scene, like you could see her like actually breaking through her lodge space prison zone, whatever it is, mental mental lapse and so it, it can be visually any of those things you know, i'm not saying it has to be lost space but you know it's like she's finally yeah. breaking through to the point where like she can kind of see where she is but then her her saying like um you know get me out of here is told like through her image in the mirror so it's like she's still in the mirror in the uh in the other zone, but like you can kind of see that like she sees herself in the the real world. Mm. Yeah. The um, as far as lodge, uh, as far as the the lodge goes, I would say the other the other thing, the other evidence to back that up would be the idea that um, she did have this encounter with Mister C, and mm. you know, like we've seen. Uh, you know, very explicitly with Diane, it's like people who people who are victimized by Mister C sort of get sort of get lodged into this purgatory state. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I know what I'm talking about with yeah, the dark. Like, yeah, mm-hmm. like Diane is split in two uh, in a certain sense and is sublimated. Uh, you know, in, in this in this vessel of of Nido, um, mm-hmm. and so I, I think, uh, you know, it might make a certain amount of sense to think of Audrey as being victimized in sort of a, a similar way where she's been, you know, she's sort of been, been stowed away in this, this in between, in between realm where she's, yeah. uh, she, she's, she's unable to, to break free on her own accord. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because uh, it's, she's not like Sarah where she just automatically gives into it. Um, but yeah, it's like that, that darkness like is more than just, because it is Mr. C you're absolutely uh, spot on with my thinking that, um, yeah, I mean, if if you basically if the lodge gets its claws into you, you're kind of stuck with it for your whole life. Right. And you could say that even for Dale. Oh, yeah, for sure. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. So fascinating stuff with the roadhouse, uh, as always. And I guess that that pretty much just leaves us with, uh, like you mentioned, Lissy. <laughs> um, we always like to talk about the the music in the season. Mm-hmm. Um, 
not everybody likes this song uh i found uh but i i like this song that she plays wild west i especially like the vocal performance Mm -hmm. that she uh she gives on it uh do you guys have an opinion about it it's uh it's nice it's a nice little pop tune i thought it was a little straight uh but as far as the song goes i i think it's it's perfectly fine. It's it's a little I don't know. It's just like a little poppier, mainstream sounding than some of the other stuff we hear, but that mm-hmm. doesn't necessarily make it bad. Uh, I love her bitch and Telecaster. That thing is really nice looking. Um, yeah, I really like her performance. Just like her her overall uh, stage presence is like really energetic, and I just I just like yeah. her her whipping her hair around and mm-hmm. uh, singing this song. And um, yeah, I don't know. I enjoy it. I was. It is a little bit. Like like you mentioned, Dylan, it's a little I don't know what the word for it. You, you said mainstream, but I just I associate Lynch and a lot of the Roadhouse performances with having a little bit more of a darker, more somber, a uh, little edgier quality yeah. to them. Uh, and this this is definitely one of the ones that um, that bucks that trend. Yeah, yeah, and happening so late in the season too, it kind of makes sense because like everybody's going through this thing where they're stagnant. Like, their energy is basically, like, frozen almost all the way through the show. It's like how everybody's talking, like, there aren't any protagonists or antagonists. You know, it's like everybody's just kind of stuck in this middle zone. And, um, yeah, I, I thought Lizzie was, like, really off-putting at first because it's like, what the hell is this? <laughs> yeah, but, yeah. but like, it, it's that jolt of energy. It's that it, it's the starting of energy again. Like, now that, now that the cycle is almost complete and everything, like, I, I think... I think there's something to that. So you, you um you subscribe to the idea that the performances that we see in the Roadhouse are feeding thematically in some way to what we see in the episodes yeah. to a certain extent, it sounds like? Yeah, absolutely. Even with the lighting and everything. Like I, I didn't think that at first, but then when I really when I when I needed to dissect them like I did, it's like, holy crap, it's it's pretty spot on. Hmm. Yeah, that's one thing that I haven't really thought too much about. I would say other than probably the Nine Inch Nails performance, mm-hmm. um, which is a song that w- was written for the show, and I think if you dissect it lyrically, you can certainly make some make some pretty interesting connections. Yeah. Um, but yeah, just the the in terms of how the the performances fit into the overall arc of the show is not really uh, something that I've given too much thought to, honestly. It's, it's, it's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I haven't broke down lyrics or anything, but like just from, just from the lighting, like you can kind of tell like, um, like with the strobe effect, especially like, you know, that that's like, you know, somebody heading down lodge space big time. But, um, you know, like you, you can just, I don't know. I mean, uh, it's not, it's not one for one, but again, it's it's more like just the way the energy is flowing throughout mm-hmm. the whole series. You know, it's like it, like right at that particular point, like you can kind of see where whether it's an ebb or a flow. Mm-hmm. Man, I I think in the next episode we're actually gonna get one that really sticks out to me in that way, which is um um the veils uh, performing that song <laughs> as uh yeah. Char- Charlene Yee is crawling on the floor and screaming. Yeah. That that's like to me is just like. Uh, a perfect marriage of performance and uh you know dramatic action mm-hmm. um yeah cool so yeah that's gonna do it 
uh, for this episode. Um, like I mentioned last week, we have entered the part of the season where I honestly feel like each episode is better than the last one. <laughs> so, like, this episode is phenomenal, in my opinion. Like, just one great, meaty, interesting scene after another here. Um, boy, yeah. Twin Peaks, guys, it's a good show. Yep. So, yeah, that's going to do it for us. Um, John, thanks so much for joining us. This was great. Yeah, yeah man, thank you. Yeah, and um, like we mentioned, uh, you could find John's work at 25yearslatersite.com. Mm-hmm. And uh, what is your Twitter handle, John? Oh, uh, uh, JPB underscore Little Green. Yeah. Uh, and you can write into us if you desire at 119podcast at gmail.com. Leave us a rate on iTunes uh, if you're enjoying the show. You can find us on Twitter at 119podcast. I am at Strenuous Orb, and Dylan is at Piff Dylan. Uh, so, yeah, thanks for joining us for this episode, and uh, hopefully, you'll stick around for part 15. Thanks a lot, guys. Bye.